Hi, everyone. I'm John Strasner. And I'm Berta Alexander. And this is Break Some Dishes, an Imagine a Place production. We're here because we realize that sometimes to get something done, you've got to start by breaking stuff up. We talk with scientists, artists, activists, educators, adventurers, and of course, designers who are doing incredible things to save our planet. Verda is a designer and I'm a talker. So we want to share these amazing conversations with you in the hopes that you'll be as inspired and excited by them as we are. And you'll start breaking some dishes of your own. There's no time to lose. So welcome to Break Some Dishes. The whole point of this podcast is to start our dialogue around social equity and the impact that um, design can have on social good and also the connection between social good and social equity and and climate good and climate equity, right? There's a definite connection. And so Verda and I are going to start working this season on that connection a little bit. We really want to draw that out. And then, of course, um, Verda and I are both fans of your book, Design for Good. You know, I was just looking at my book and realizing he never signed it for me. So oh, he signed mine. Uh, of course he did. <laughs> Everybody likes it. I just noticed we have one on our bookshelf here at our River House. I should get some. Oh, of course. Yeah. So I am like that. I'm the red-haired stepchild when it comes to John and Vernon. And, so. and the other thing, too, we love to bring in is personal stories, uh, personal background, how you got started. And we can always pause and, you know, regroup we can if you have to. edit and cut anything. John, we do have something called an edit surcharge. And so, you know, if you say something that you regret, we will <laughs> remove it. But I believe, Verda, what's the going rate on the edit surcharge these days? I believe it's $75 a cut. Oh, my That's God. All? Okay. That's Let's just get going. <laughs> all put right, Verda. Put some pillows on my coffee table so I can like at least pretend like I've got some noise dampening and stuff. You know what? That is a great idea. I'm so impressed. Okay, John. John. Verda, kick John. it off. Let's go. Yeah, we're getting started. Come on. Stop holding us up here. Yeah. Okay, John and I. We love to break some dishes in the kitchen. We like to invite what we could call cooks to come in and help us come up with new recipes to save the planet, do the right thing. And that's why we're here. Right, John? And we have an incredible guest today that we both know pretty well. We've both known for a number of years and haven't seen in a while. So it's great to see his face. And John, why don't you introduce him, please? Yeah. Yeah. I'm always excited about our guests, Verda. And today obviously is no different. We we have um, our good friend, John Kerry, joining us today. And for those of you who don't know who John is, you know, I always have a hard time introducing friends, right? Because I just want to say, oh, this is my friend, John Kerry. I love him. He's awesome. <laughs> Great, John. Is that a good introduction? <laughs> That's perfect. That's about all I deserve at this point. This, this <laughs> well, let me just say that, you know, John, I think you consider yourself, you know, I was I was online sort of reading about you a little bit, which felt kind of weird, like I was a creeper. But anyway, John, you consider yourself a connector, writer, speaker, and a curator focused on social change. I, I look at John as um, somebody who was really... Um, pushing the conversation around social equity issues long before many of us were. You're one of the founders of public architecture, 
which was a uh, an amazing nonprofit yeah. that basically um, worked with our interior design industry to deliver design services and architecture too and architecture services to people who were disenfranchised disadvantaged downtrodden and really bringing social um, equity to design which was amazing and you did that for quite a while and you've written more than one book uh, but your most recent book i believe it's your most recent design for good and Verda and I are both fans of Design for Good, where published you really... in 2017. Thank you, Verda, for that. Verda is my fact checker today. <laughs> um, yeah, so you've done you actually you do a lot. Uh, you also I just read and I was unaware that you co-authored an op-ed with your wife Courtney, who I think is probably the more talented of the two of you. No question, um, no question. <laughs> called Failures of a Breast Pump. <laughs> which sparked uh, which sparked an MIT hackathon. So we're getting we're going to get into that too. I it think actually had a much better title in the New York Times when it was published. It was "Shouldn't the Breast Pump Be as Quiet as a Prius and as Elegant as an iPhone by Now?" <laughs> and it went completely viral, and it created like <laughs> not just that MIT hackathon, but also um, several companies. Some like actual companies grew out of that that uh, op ed. And of course, where it started was I walked upstairs into our bedroom when we had our first child and um, <laughs> Courtney was wearing this like contraption. And I'm like, what the heck is that? You know, I didn't see that in any of our childbirthing classes or otherwise. <laughs> I didn't even know how she would know how to use that kind of a thing. And it just <laughs> launched us into this whole conversation. And it was really there was a really special period. I'll just say that you you clearly you thought somebody was operating a lawnmower upstairs in your extra a dot bedroom. matrix printer is what it sounded like. But. All right, we're already, <laughs> ha- we're already having a crazy we're conversation. We're off the rails here. Okay, yeah, yeah we're already well, off the rails, and we I, we do want to plug Courtney's podcast, fellow podcasters. We always have to plug them. So when you remember the name of her podcast, please right. let us know. <laughs> I'll just say that Courtney is a co-host of a podcast that's co-produced by. Skoll Foundation and the Aspen Institute. And she has an amazing uh, co-host from Nairobi. And they talk with solvers all over the world about how to use any number of social change tools to create real impact in their communities. And it's a, it's an amazing podcast. So go to Skoll Foundation uh, to learn more about that. Yeah, why yeah, aren't you talking to her, John? It's well, I don't you know what? If, if listen, John's her husband and John, when you find out when you when the name of her podcast comes to mind, let us know. I'm sure Courtney will be hugely appreciative that you can't remember the name of her damn podcast. We are well, off the rails today. Okay, let's is, let's get hey, back on let's get, get back us on track, track, Verda. Good God. John, right now you're the executive director of the Eames Ranch. I am the executive director of the Eames Ranch and in just a few days from the time of this podcast interview, uh, we'll be launching publicly a brand new 501c3 you know, public charity called the Eames Institute. Uh, and it will join the Eames Foundation, which is focused on preserving that you know, uh, couple's historic home in Los Angeles, as well as the Eames Office, which is the ongoing family business, um, as a third entity that takes, in our case, the lessons of Charles and Ray Eames and tries to bring them not just into the present, but carry them into the future. And so this is something I've been working on stealth for the past three and a half years. 
um, I'm excited to share more about it with you. Yeah, I can't wait. But real quick for our listeners who aren't designers, Charles and Ray Eames, we're a couple living in the Los Angeles area in the 50s. They're most often considered the father and mother of modern design and architecture. And they were so far ahead of their times. I mean, they weren't just architects. They were product designers. They were filmmakers. And they were thinking about circularity. They were thinking about using recycled materials, all kinds of things way ahead of their time. And they have, a was it a home that they had up there or an off? Uh, in the, the Eames Ranch itself? Yeah, um, what is the Eames Ranch? Eames Ranch was the, 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 the home and uh, estate of Lucia Eames, who was the daughter of Charles Eames right. from his first marriage to a woman named Catherine in St. Louis. And um, Ray became a mother to her very quickly, obviously. Um, because Ray is extraordinary in, in every imaginable way from everything I've heard and read. Uh, and so this place that that um, came after Ray's passing in 1988, it was, it was built in the mid-1990s. Um, an architect named William Turnbull, who's a, a famous you know, Northern California architect that had a big influence, not just in this region, but far beyond, um, designed the two structures there that are affectionately known as the Eames Ranch. And there's a lot more to share about that, but I'll pause. Perfect. Okay. That's perfect. Great. So, hey, Verdict, do I get to like ask the first question? Absolutely. All Go right. Go for it. It's not really a question, John, but I do want to know what sparked public architecture. Can you tell us that story, how that of got course. started? It was probably 2002. Um, so 20 yeah. years ago, believe it or not. And so, so public architecture was the brainchild of this of this San Francisco architectural practitioner named John Peterson, and he had so many like great instincts and intentions, and really just wanted to like do projects in the way that a lot of architects and designers just want to like you know they're walking down the street and they're just like wouldn't it be better if and there's no client associated with that. Well, the interesting thing was John heard from a lot of other architects that that was the same experience that they were having. And so he had this idea that what if all of those architects and designers put together their good intentions and goodwill and pro bono service, et cetera, into a program that he named at the time, the 1%, um, after the 1%, you know, Occupy 1% Wall Street <laughs> thing, they we rebranded yeah. it. It became um, a, different, uh, a different name after that. But um, uh, at its peak, the 1% program had... Um, you know, hundreds of firms from all across the country, from all different types of, uh, you know, design disciplines beyond architecture and interior design, which were kind of the core. And each of them pledged 1% of their billable hours. So about 20 hours per employee per year to pro bono service uh, in the aid of nonprofit organizations and other community-based projects that wouldn't otherwise benefit from professional services. And, um, if every architecture firm and design firm in the country did that, it, in aggregate, it would be larger than the largest architecture firm, and it would wow. be working you know, exclusively for the public good. And so it was much more decentralized than that, but it was a really amazing program. And um, I was, I was uh, uh, you know, fresh out of grad school at Berkeley. That was my first job. And um, I became the executive director in very short order. Uh, I was so young and green at the time that my first business card said, uh, acting executive director. And then after a few months of just showing that I actually had some instincts around this, 
John had them reprinted as <laughs> executive director. I still have some of those cards. Interim, yeah. interim executive director. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's not a great show of confidence, by the it way. Was, it really wasn't, <laughs> but we, we grew on each other a lot. So. <laughs> now, just curious where, what background you had coming out of Berkeley that landed you that position or what was that's your a, interest in what? A great question. I would say not a qualified one. That's the <laughs> n- number one thing. The second thing is, um, you know, I, I had both my degrees in architecture, uh, one of them undergraduate degree from University of Minnesota, the other one a graduate degree from UC Berkeley. And while at Berkeley, I was, instead of doing a design thesis, I did a re- what's called a research, a written thesis, and it was focused on the culture of the architecture profession. And so uh, I was very interested in far beyond like the mechanics of practice, but just like, what is this? What are we trying to do together? You know? And uh, I was introduced to John by um, another architect named Tim Culvehouse, who uh, is a, another kind of well-known connector in the Bay Area. And one thing led to another. And uh, the cool thing about the 1% and the whole pro bono movement is that um, I, I had been admiring that kind of facet of the legal profession for years. So my, my, um, one of my thesis advisors at Berkeley was the dean of the law school. Uh, because I was just interested in, hey, we may think we know all the things we need to know about this profession of architecture, but there are other, you know, learned professions, including the law. And the, and the law school was, you know, like a stone's throw away from the architecture school. So I literally, I mean, this, I think this is kind of like pre-email days, it sort of felt like at least. I remember knocking on this woman's door and I was this ratty, you know, like uns- I hadn't been sleeping, of course, because I was still <laughs> pulling all-nighters doing design work. But um, I knocked on her door and she became my thesis advisor and just kind of introduced me to the, to the legal counterpart to the pro bono design world that we tried to create. And it seems like it's guided your career in a very unique direction ever since. And I do want to fast forward to the design for good, but just one quick last question on public architecture. So it did dissolve or go away at some point in the later 2000s, and nobody's really picked up or has any kind of organization similar to it today, which is kind well, of a shame. Yes, and or no. Is yeah, there? I think okay. Technically, it still exists. It, it, oh, okay. It, no, John Peterson um, had another amazing career evolution. He became the head of the Loeb Fellowship at Harvard. Right. right. And um, he was really the heart and soul of that place, certainly after I left. I was there for seven, maybe eight years. And so... Um, he carried it on and I think it still carries on in some form today. I, I wouldn't want to diminish that. I'm just not as oh, okay. familiar with it. Um, but to answer the latter part of your question, you know, there, there are firms that maybe not, they're not like organizing the organizing other firms in the way that we try to do with the 1%, but there are actual firms. And in one specific case, a nonprofit that is going so far above and beyond anything that we could have ever imagined, frankly. And that firm is called Mass Design Group. Um, Mass stands for a model of architecture serving society. And it grew out of some graduate work that a group of students were doing at Harvard in the mid 2000s. Um, before Mass was even founded, one of the co-founders of Mass like stumbled into our public architecture office. So there was an actual connection there. And um, uh, it, yeah. it, it birthed, you know, that, that organization, Mass, birthed this like, whole new way of doing this work that mm-hmm. in some on some level like on some level may negate the public interest or mm-hmm. at least the pro bono piece what they did is they 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 proved that it was possible 
to build a practice that has hundreds of employees at this point. So I don't want to go too far down that road, but yeah. I do want to say that um, it, 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 there's, a, there's a definite connection there and there's a really positive evolution and growth. And I think um, the best thing that I ever did in my career, so it's all downhill from here, obviously, <laughs> is that we got the hell out of the way. Once I saw what Mass Design Group was capable of, it, it you know, we we were never set up, at least under my leadership, to compete as if you would want to compete with an entity like Mass Design Group. They were so next level, and they still are today. That's well, to thinking. tease out, just to tease our listeners a bit, we are going to talk to Michael Murphy at Mass Design. He's going to be coming up in another episode. So, but Verda, we really haven't told our listeners why we're talking to John Kerry either. Do you want to explain a little bit about um, how we're trying to tie social? Yeah, yeah. Actually, this this more? is a perfect segue, and I do I okay. I do think that's pretty exciting, and and I'm glad you put that in perspective. This idea of public architecture evolving, and I think. Every company should be thinking about everything they do being for for the greater Everyone. good. Yeah, for the greater good, which brings us to the book that you wrote, uh, Design for Good. And I'm I'm positive what you're doing at the Eames Ranch ties into this. But yeah, we maybe we could talk about this for a few minutes. I thought I thought I came up with this until I dug up this book just before this interview, and I like, oh, that's where I got the idea from John Kerry. <laughs> so <laughs> you. This, this was just before I launched my Food for Thought truck, where I went out into the community with a mobile design lab and tried to, to do projects with the community because I was, I was disillusioned by my corporate clients, right? Not really only serving the, the corporate 1%. And you wrote here, for too long, design has been seen as a luxury, the province of the rich, not the poor, who often need it most. That can no longer be acceptable to those of us in the design field nor to those affected by the field's too often anemic moral imagination, which is to say absolutely everybody. And I'm like, okay, I guess it wasn't my idea. <laughs> I, was, I was designing for the elite, the corporate elite. I mean, these workplaces are beautiful and they're incredible, but they're not serving the greater good. And I think- yeah, But Verda, you realized it. You realized I it. Did. Uh, you I know? did. And now what's really exciting, I was actually just at a, co- a design conference and a lot of people are thinking, a lot of designers are thinking about how those workplaces or whatever uh, ho- hotels or yeah. things can can have a broader reach out into the community and out into the environment. Yeah. And so it's pretty exciting stuff. And your book, you 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 actually profile mass quite a bit and a few other incredible projects. And you give specific examples of how design can can serve the greater good. Yeah. I, I mean, hearing you read those words is very timely for me. You know, um, I'm sure all of us get a little disconnected from uh, statements like that at different times. And I certainly have, um, I think it's been easy to do on some level in recent years with COVID and other things as we've been a little bit more isolated, but I didn't write that to shame people. Um, the, the kind of pervading thought from that book and kind of related stuff that I was doing at the time was that everyone deserves good design. And so it was really to try to not again, shame the corporate clientele, but really to say, hey, let's do for them in a you know more contextually appropriate way, of course, uh, what, what other people need. And so yeah. um, 
that that was really the the thrust of it. Yeah. Um, and on some level, it may seem like a big jump from that book to the work that I've been doing quietly for the most part since that time. Um, but I remember to thread a few weird things together here. I remember before I went to the Eames ranch for the first time, a woman named Lisa Demetrius, who's the youngest of the five grandchildren of Charles and Ray Eames sent me an email and I was in a taxi cab. This is, it feels like pre-Uber, but it probably wasn't pre-Uber. It was just somehow I was in a taxi cab in New York going to the Cooper Hewitt National Design Awards where Mass was being honored. And she sent me this email and it had an attachment and there was this diagram that I had never seen before. And it was this hand sketch diagram that now we call, or is, is I now know is called the overlapping interest diagram that Charles and Ray Eames designed. And it's this kind of blobby thing. Imagine like a Venn diagram for all intents and purposes for, for readers. And it basically talks about the interests of the design firm and the needs of the client, as well as the needs of society intersecting. And that's where they wanted to work. And that was really powerful for me because I realized that they were in a diagrammatic form kind of expressing what I had taken an entire book to express. And so um, the other thing about their work that created a bridge for me uh, is that they were really focused on what they called the best for the most for the least. Best quality for the most people for the least cost. And that was a democratization, you know, democratization of design that I had like been hoping and wishing and dreaming of. And yet it predated us, predated me by decades. And not to say that it's been a perfect process in the sense that, you know, it, this material that they still, you know, produce, it, it costs real money. Um, but I think it was that ambition and that idea of being in service to society that really is what attracts me to them to this day. Interior designers care a lot. They care a lot about people and they care a lot about their client and they care a lot about their client's program. I mean, we are seriously devoted about meeting the challenges of our client and providing the best interior space for people. The problem is it's, it's a specific group of people and up until recent years, it really hasn't expanded beyond that. And so this Venn diagram is key. It's critical. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you, I, I want to, if you have an image of it, maybe we can add it to our show notes some somehow. But this idea of where we intersect with our client and our client's needs and programs and where we intersect with the needs of society, we need to really start to embrace that and explore that as designers. Your work stands out because it is, it's Eamesian in so many ways. It's, oh gosh. You know, the, <laughs> like, the incredible like playfulness and use of color. You're creating spaces for people to hopefully live their best lives. Now it might be a work life, but like yeah. you still want them to be happy, comfortable, etc. cetera. And um, I, I think that's like the big, that's kind of where I fall in, in, in any debate that might be happening, you know, either here or <laughs> elsewhere. Um, is that let's let's bring the best that we can to every imaginable situation and client and community. But the the difference, I think, and maybe this is what you're trying to highlight a little bit, is that um, you know so often communities and nonprofit clients and and other entities of the sort don't ever get access to design services. Like the the, the profession is just not set up 
to proactively go out and serve them. And there are very few mechanisms, reasons, trainings, et cetera, that lead communities or, you know, nonprofits that are just struggling to keep the doors open to believe that they deserve good design or they, that they could benefit from it. If they knew they could benefit from it, sure, they're so entrepreneurial and industrious uh, that they would almost certainly pursue it. But we've kind of over, as, as an industry, we've kind of overlooked some of these, I think, potential clients, to put it in the most crass terms. Yeah. And um, that is a total shortcoming on the, part of, on the part of the industry, but it's one that can be corrected in a heartbeat. Um, Very easily. With the kind of mobile work that you set out to do, it could be corrected in any number of ways. And um, uh, once again, I would circle back to not just the great work that your firm does, but also look at Mass. You know, they, they, they were a breakout because they partnered with a decades old global health organization called Partners in Health, uh, founded by now the late Paul Farmer um, that, that passed a few weeks ago, very sadly. And this is literally, it remains, and it was at the time they started working together, the, the most innovative, cutting-edge public health organization in the world, and they had never worked with architects. So is that their mm. fault, or is that the fault of the industry that it never connected with a, a client that has huge budgets because of the extraordinary work and impact that they have, and they have extensive facilities, extensive facility needs? So, like, what was the disconnect there? Like, it might be easy to say, oh, the client didn't, you know, never sought us out or something, but, like, they didn't even know that we existed. Like, that's yeah. the whole yeah. trust. Yeah. And the great Can thing you- about Mass is that they, and I don't want to obsess over there because I know we're going to interview them eventually, but their stuff is beautiful in such a different way. It's like, we, like it's something, it's familiar, yet we've never seen it before. Yeah. I think part of the power is that it's so humble and it's honest materials. And I think when you start designing with constraints, I was asked once, would you rather have a lot of money and do a project or not a lot of money or no money and do a project? And I actually said no money because you're having that challenge really drives you to be even more innovative and even more creative. And I think Mass has just done an incredible job. And then going back to part of the issue is we need to start celebrating and awarding, rewarding, awarding projects that maybe don't have a, that visual impact that we're used to, but do have a sustainable or societal impact. Yeah. And and how do we do that? That's 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 the question yeah. that we all need to get into a room together and well, start brainstorming. I'll plug ASID for a minute and say that we do have a program called the Outcome of Design, which is all about. Um, the performance of space, not so much the aesthetics of space, mm. which uh, Great. look that up. Yeah. But, but John, tell us about, I would, I would love to hear maybe looking at design for good. Do you have a favorite project or one that you really like to talk about? Um, well, I mean, one of the, one of my favorites that can reduce me to tears in a matter of <laughs> seconds, frankly, is this project in Malawi called the maternity waiting village. Um, ah, yeah, and actually, yeah. as you were introducing me, um, it reminded me of a of one of the more awkward introductions that I've ever had, where <laughs> I somehow found myself in Malawi, in the the presence of. I don't think that you ever somehow find yourself in Malawi, but go ahead. I was basically <laughs> invited on this global health mission trip with the Aspen Institute, and oh. I, when I say mission, I mean like 
it, it was like an envoy kind of thing. It wasn't religious in any way, shape, or form, obviously. But w- there were a group of world leaders that were going at the invitation of the the president of Malawi to talk with her and work with her cabinet around maternal health. And I was brought there essentially as a photographer. And so I literally had a camera. I like, you know, I, I, I can't even imagine what I was wearing at the time, but we had been in Rwanda visiting the Butaro hospital by mass design group and partners in health the previous week. And when, um, when we started talking with the president of Malawi about her maternal health goals, she said that she had this idea, um, and in fact, a few examples that were already built, to build what she called maternal waiting homes. These were these like concrete structures, brick in some cases, that would dot the country. 154 of them were originally envisioned in her plan. And I basically said to one of her cabinet members, like, Hey, have you seen the Butaro Hospital? Like, this is an example of design in a in a similar African context li- using local labor and local materials. It would be maybe worth showing the president this. So, what happens as our envoy is being introduced? This was like the president of Ireland, the president of Latvia. I am introduced as the president of public interest design. <laughs> I so, love it. Congratulations on the promotion. In fact, a blog, it was a website, publicinterestdesign.org, that I would do in my boxers at my like rickety kitchen table in Brooklyn. (laughs) But I was not in any way qualified, title or otherwise, to be like standing next to these presidents. So I ended up presenting it to the president of Malawi. And it was really powerful because it it just showed in such visual terms, the Butara Hospital showed in such visual terms, like another possible for her. And so what happened was we got the opportunity to make a connection between Mass Design Group, the Gates Foundation, and a local you know, health service provider in Malawi. And Mass worked with them to design a what they called maternity waiting village, which basically took the maternal waiting home and kind of turned it on its head and created much more of a communal, you know, um, much more small scale but replicable kind of fabric as opposed to this like box that you would put all these expectant mothers in. So that is unequivocally the most powerful project that I'll probably ever work on in my career. And it was brought to life by Mass Design Group. And it was born out of a a very simple visual example that somebody in a place of power had never seen before, but instantly understood. So it was just I cannot, I cannot stop talking about it. So I'll pause there again. But wow. it's, it's literally, it still gives me goosebumps. I think this is a great moment to segue into what you're doing now, and maybe even how lessons from that project and the book that you wrote are fueling what you're doing and. From the little that we could see, I know you haven't officially launched or revealed what you're doing, but from the little that we could find, John and I, in our searching, it sounds like you're you're looking now at even a more holistic picture, sustainability right. and circularity and things like that. So, yeah, let yeah. It, tell us what you can about this. Of course, the yeah, I'm happy to tell you everything, assuming awesome. that we launch as planned. Um, so... You know, at the time that I first visited the Eames Ranch, I was still stuck in this like last phase of my career or, you know, you know, previous phase of my career where I was on an airplane all the time. 
I was flying all over the place talking about that book, you know, attending conferences, doing all the things that used to seem kind of normal at that time, pre-COVID. And I remember visiting that Eames Ranch, which is this large property in Petaluma, about an hour north of San Francisco in Northern California, and showing up there and just immediately feeling at ease and a kind of calm that I certainly didn't feel in my urban Oakland co-housing community where I live, nor did I feel when I'm like running from flight to flight or attending conferences or whatever. And so it really made an immediate impact on me. And I remember calling my wife as I was leaving the driveway of the Eames Ranch for the first time being like, I'm not sure if I'm going to ever be the same after seeing this. And so it's these two big buildings. They're both filled with Eames ephemera of different kinds. And it's, that's amazing. Somebody that's like interested in, and in my case, like an amateur collector of Eames material and chairs and that kind of thing. But it was far beyond that. It was the welcoming embrace of this grandchild of Charles and Ray Eames that made it like really humanized it for me. It was this idyllic setting of this farmland in Northern California that the kind of thing that a lot of us get to drive by, but rarely get to kind of penetrate, for lack of a better word, to go onto that land. And so here I was in the middle of this land, you know, kind of surrounded. There's, there's, there were several dozen sheep at that time and a llama, and it just really moved me. And I knew with the passing of Lucia Eames, Lisa's mother, that they were trying to create a nonprofit to operate this place. And so through a series of circumstances, I kind of volunteered to, to build a nonprofit around this whole thing. And it's just kind of grown and grown and grown from there. We now own and operate the entirety of the Eames archive and collection that was retained by the Eames family. You know, estimated to be 20,000 plus objects. It's like a small museum. And we want to document all that material for the first time and share it with the world for the first time. And so that's really exciting. But the, the thing that comes from that collection, as well as from the place that we call home, are lessons. And so the lessons can be derived from Charles and Ray's, you know, writings and teachings and films and the actual furniture and that kind of thing. But they're intended to help problem solvers of today, not just designers, but anybody that's using, you know, that, that has the, the slightest inkling that, that, that a creative approach to problem solving could make a difference. Those are the people we want to reach. And so we're creating an institute that we hope on, you know, some, someday we'll be on the scale of the Aspen Institute that will become influential across sectors, that will bring people together, that will do a lot more than just talk, and instead will really engage in problem solving. We're still very small, but we have really big ambitions and dreams along those lines. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you're looking to make some social impact Absolutely. with that institute, yeah. which is which is pretty cool. It reminds yeah. me a little bit of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation also. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the circular economy is really, she's one of the absolute pioneers of that. And mm. she's done such an extraordinary job. So it would be a resource center uh, yeah, visitor? Yeah, I would, would say you- it's, it's part... You know, the the ranch itself is this like living laboratory. It is agricultural land, so it is an agricultural use, and we will only maintain that. Um, We want to bring people there to experience that, especially as we 
kind of prototype and pioneer some of the, the lessons of Charles and Ray in this you know vast agricultural landscape. That's going to be really cool. We're going to be launching essentially a, a virtual museum. In the future, we may have something that's much more uh, in some other location outside of the agricultural land, but a, a, a you know a, a, an actual place where people can come and interact with the collection that we have, and really, more importantly, interact with one another. You know, I think that the the cool thing about the Eames Ranch is is that the first impression is definitely like the beautiful landscape and what is inside, but it's really it's really what people are inspired to do and who they interact with when they're there. And so we want more of those kind of chance encounters and what Lisa and I think her family have called chain reactions, you know, where like one thing that might've been born there or sparked there or seeded there could grow into something far bigger. And so we're, we're really excited about those possibilities. Oh, I'm all about chain reactions. So um, have you seen progression in the industry with social impact, John, do you think we've oh absolutely come a long way top to bottom? I think there's progression. So the interesting thing with the one percent program, just to give a quick example here, we had top firm leaders like Art Gensler that got interested in it because they read about it probably in an industry magazine, and he almost unilaterally signed up that firm. In other cases, we had the most junior associates who got excited about it after seeing myself or John Peterson or one of our colleagues named Liz Ogbu or others talk about it. And they went back to their firms and did it from the quote unquote bottom up. And so that like just the fact that it could be either one of those directions, I think, was really interesting at that time. And in the, you know, the seven years that I was there, I saw more and more of things happen in both directions. So that felt to me like evolution at that time. Then I do think mass design group started to do its work, but simultaneously you saw things like the Pritzker architectural prize, um, start to honor architects like, um, uh, that, that would do things in the public realm. And so there were several architects that were like really lauded for that. And I think the the best part of that evolution, if you follow the trajectory of the Pritzker Prize, is that now we're kind of at this point where it's not this either or. It's not this do-gooder design or progressive design. It's both of those things fused into one. And if you looked at like Grafton Architects or some other, you know, firms that that, you know, have kind of slowly and humbly been doing really beautiful, impactful work. Now the Pritzker Prize is recognizing those things. And so I think that's amazing in terms of progress and evolution. And, you know, I gave two very different examples, but I'm sure you can see that within ASID. I'm sure you can see that within the AIA, the American Institute of Architects. I'm sure you can see that in firms across the country and around the world at this point. Um, there is, there's, so, there's far greater attention to the social good and to social needs um, than there were 20 years ago, period, full stop. Like I will stand by that statement and I hope it only continues to grow. It's not enough. It's, it'll never be enough, in fact, but it is, there, there is cause to celebrate. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I think Metropolis has a sustainability award as well. Yeah, there's lots. I mean, I think sustainability is really interesting and I would, I would say that environmental sustainability 
through any number of mechanisms, whether it's you know the USGBC's advocacy or all the other derivatives of that. Um, you know, I, I would call that years, if not a couple of decades ahead of where the kind of social sustainability movement, quote unquote, is. It's a little, it remains a little bit more like grassroots for all intents and purposes. Social um, does. Yeah. Absolutely. Right now. Yeah. And I think the more people recognize the interconnectedness of the two, that we're lo- that the reason we're having environmental issues and we need to address sustainability is because of these systems that have been been put into place that have really um, harmed certain populations of people and why we yeah. have why Absolutely. we have these social issues and why they need to be addressed, right? Absolutely. So once I, I think people are starting to see that connection and that movement will grow. Yeah, it's it's bringing me back to one of our earlier episodes, Verda, when we had we had Air Copeland on. Oh yeah, remember oh, him? I do. Right, who was bringing an art center, you know, into an area, into a neighborhood of, Los of California. Los An- it was, was in it Los- downtown LA somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to basically uh, bring museum experiences to disenfranchised communities. And we often don't think about, you know, does a Guggenheim get built in the middle of an impoverished part of town or does a Guggenheim get built, you know, over by Central Park. Yeah. And who's, be- <laughs> who's benefiting from what? Yeah. And that, who's going, yeah. who's enjoying it. And that those people that, that are impacting the climate the least have the smallest footprints are the ones that are going to be impacted the most. Yeah. Um, I think what you were just describing, well, it, made, it made me think of the work of Theaster Gates on the South side of Chicago, which I would just highly recommend that your listeners check out. He's a, a fine art practitioner, but also doing really, really thoughtful community-based development work um, in the dozens of buildings at this point, taking things that were very devalued by the city in the case of like closed school buildings or by, you know, the utilities in the case of like old pump houses or whatever, and turning them into community amenities on the South side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And he, um, he's just such a, a creative practitioner, but also somebody that just sees so much potential and so much good in things. And, um, you know, he, he's, he's of that community as well. I think that that's, that's the difference. I mean, I I don't think the solution will ever be for the Guggenheim to put a museum or whatever they might do or any other institution of that sort in a community that's not their own uh, without at least a partner like Aster or some some person of the sort. So, you know, I, I do yeah. um, just want to highlight highlight their work. Um, it's really extraordinary. It yeah, just this just made me think of a book that I'm reading. It's fiction, but it's it's interspersing a story or a couple of storylines with some facts, and it's called Ministry of the Future. It's it's based in the not so distant future, and it starts with a horrible heat wave in India. Wow. And I was just reading a chapter, a short chapter, kind of a soundbite chapter that talks about if if we were to divvy up uh, energy use amongst everyone, what how much energy could each person have so that everybody had the same amount, and could we live off of that? And somebody mm. did this experiment, and the, it, they proved that you could live comfortably. You know, you'd have to dial down the temperature and you I mean you couldn't be extravagant but you could live comfortably every person on the planet could live comfortably with the 
with what's available to us on this planet. And it makes me think of Charles Murray Eames because mm. they they were really bringing it back. trying to bring Murder. it back. Um, they were all about how to ha- live humbly and simply, but mm. with this element of luxury. And I almost hate to use that word because it might get misconstrued, but luxury. Elegance, elegance might be another yeah, thing. Yeah. Like you still were living a good life. You're still living a yeah. good life, but it's humble and it's simple and it's connected. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, Verda, we're kind of coming to the end of our time with Can John. Can we ask John is... just what his moonshot is or how he'd like to close or. Uh, well, I had something oh, else I was going to say. Sorry. <laughs> um, you say in your, your book dedication um, that Courtney Martin, your, your wife, uh, taught you that buildings are about people and people are about stories. And I want to thank you because you definitely shared some beautiful stories with us today. And I want to say that Design for Good, your storytelling in that book is remarkable. And um, you can't help but get emotionally drawn in to the kind of work that you're highlighting, you know, by by people like the people at Mass Design and the people that you talked about today. So I just want to thank you for sharing that with Uh, us. That's awesome. And now I'm going to throw it to Verda for sure. I, I, I could go back to this book too. I love these lessons that you have at the end of the book and lesson number one. And I think John, you, you really do embrace this, obviously just walking into this ranch, realizing that you, your life would never be the same again, embrace a beginner's mindset. Mm. And I, I did this think that's so important for all of us to, to, maybe it comes back to being humble and being willing to, to learn and change. Yeah. As the long name of the of the Eames Institute, as folks will soon see, is the Eames Institute Institute of Infinite Curiosity, and Love so it. it was really that <laughs> like insatiable curiosity like that. and that quote unquote beginner's mindset that Charles and Ray brought to their work, and I think it's what designers are like very gifted at doing, and and in fact well trained to do, but it's easy to lose that. You know, I I I really I've been reflecting a lot of late and thinking about how important I believe that that is and how easy it is to not do it, to not be curious, to get caught up in all the other things, our devices and otherwise. So um, that same type of like pause and reset that I had several years ago when I visited that Eames Ranch for the first time, I hope people have that feeling when they come to our website, when they come to the ranch or some other location and um, that really, you know, that that is what I hope to be a kind of gift to the world going forward. And um, we've got much bigger moonshots beyond that, but I'll I'll leave it there for now. That's a great way to end. That's Love great. it. Yeah. Beautiful. Let's yeah. stay curious. Thank you, John. If you've enjoyed today's episode, drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To hear more trailblazers taking on the world's issues through the lens of design, visit us at breaksomedishes.com. I'm Verda Alexander. And I'm John Strasner. And you've been listening to Break Some Dishes. <laughs>